Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. On today's program, we bring you an interview with Dr. Janessa Kilgore Bowling. Dr. Kilgore Bowling is director of the social work program at the University of Pikeville, and she spoke with me about her research into anti-fat bias in social work education and society at large. My name is Dr. Janessa Kilgore Bowling. I am actually native Appalachian. Um, grew up in Pike County, daughter of a coal miner and, you know, and a housewife. So anything stereotypical that you could think of Appalachia, I probably fit into that category. I am the director of the social work program at the University of Pikeville. I have been there um, for 11 years. Yeah, okay. I think I'm into my 12th year now. I uh, began teaching there in the psychology program, and we decided um, we really needed a social work program in our area. We had a lot of needs that weren't being met and um, started the ball rolling. And within a year or so, we had went through the process of getting that approved, and I was named the founding director. So That's I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud of our program. Our students are doing some beautiful things in our area and all across the, our country, actually. What are some of the student projects that you're most excited about, if you can talk about them? Oh, goodness. Um, well, once our students graduate, they go into lots of positions of public trust, and we have students that are doing community organizing. Um, we have students working in advocacy positions that are working to change school environments. So, And those are just our graduates. And our undergraduates, um, those that are still with us, are doing some really fantastic things in the community to promote um, inclusivity, to promote kindness, to promote um, just awareness of all the different types of diversity. We have on campus, but also in our community, to take that off of our little, off of our hill, as we call it at U-Pike, and, and to spread that out and to really push the idea that we all have dignity and worth. Mm. And that's a core foundation um, to social work is the dignity and worth of every person. And, um, and we're missing that, I think, in today's society. We're, we're starting to forget about that, um, particularly with uh, vulnerable groups. Mm. And um, we, we really want to work to change that. Well, cool. And so I, I think you recently finished your dissertation. I did. That's why I had to use that title. I know. I'm glad you did. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank I bet you. You're exhausted. Yes. <laughs> and I thought it would get a little bit easier, but I think my life just picked up in other areas, so it hasn't slowed down very much. Yeah. Well, I hope you get a break at some point, but congratulations on finishing. And maybe um, could you tell us kind of a little bit about your dissertation, the title, the, what it focused on? and Sure. Um, the title of my dissertation was The Impact of Attitudes and Beliefs About Fat on Social Work Education in Appalachia. That's a mouthful, right? <laughs> um, but it really came from um, three important pieces of who I am. The first part of that is my lived experience as a fat woman in Appalachia and just growing up in Appalachia, what I experienced as a result of my size. And... Um, any sort of stigmatizing or discriminatory situation, you know, and so that, that really had an impact on, on who I became to be. And the other aspect of that is the fact that I'm a social work educator. So in my courses, when I speak about diversity and we talk about social justice issues and oppressions and vulnerability and intersectionality, um, I always included body size. And when I would go to conferences or I would be around other professional social work educators and I would talk about fat, their faces would like change and they would look at me like I'd just grown another head while we were talking because it's not a recognized um, 
aspect of diversity. Mm-hmm. And and then the other piece of that is as a researcher, um, those responses that I was getting from those social work educators, you know, hit the, the researcher in me. And I was like, wow, I need to really take a look at this. And um, I started talking about it a little bit while I was taking classes in the doctoral program at the University of Kentucky College of Social Work. And some of my professors even were like, eh, I don't know, Janessa, I'm not real sure about it. But I finally got a few to bite and uh, and let me, you know, go off in this direction. And um, it's it's a really amazing study. And it's my hope. And, and I'm not going to say hope. I know that it's going to make a real difference in social work education. It's just going to take a little time to change people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about more about, if you'd like to, some of your personal experiences that led you to this Sure, work? absolutely. Um, first of all, I should probably go ahead and, and, and mention that you probably won't hear me use a whole lot of the O words, overweight, obesity, obese. And part of that is because um, the, the area of research and the area of study that I come from, um, fat studies is what it's called, sees those words as, um, as derogatory. And the word fat is actually not pejorative in, in our area. It's a, um, it's a neutral adjective, just to describe a shape. And it's also a political identity. So you won't hear me use a whole lot of the O words. And, and occasionally I'll slip up and do it. And I'm like, darn. But you'll hear me use fat more. And, and mostly because um, obesity is a medical phrase. And I'm not talking about medicine or even the public health it, supposed public health epidemic, but that's that's a different discussion. I'm really talking about how this aspect of my identity has led to a lot of oppression and a lot of discrimination. Um, as far as my experiences, growing up, um, I was, uh, you know, I was a fat child and I was a very active fat child. I was one of those kids that enjoyed breaking stereotypes. I was a dancer. I actually clog so awesome. um, I was doing that. Yeah, totally Appalachian. Yeah. I'm telling you, um, you know, spent a lot of time at bluegrass festivals doing that kind of stuff growing up. And um, so I was a dancer and I was a cheerleader, but I was always the fat cheerleader. I was the fat dancer, but it never slowed me down. I always did those things. And part of it was, like I said, I wanted to break the stereotypes. But the other part of it was that's just what I really love to do. And I was good at it. You know, mm-hmm. not only was I the fat cheerleader, but I was the good fat cheerleader. And that was important to me. But um, that still didn't seem to do anything to promote me being included in activities or people treating me as an equal. As a matter of fact, um, as I grew up, the larger that I got, the more devalued that I felt and stigmatized and and the more discrimination that I experienced. Um, I remember once in high school, um, an instructor telling me that I was probably one of the best leaders in this particular program I was involved in, but he just couldn't have an overweight teenager leading this group. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, that's, though there have been a lot of, um, a lot of situations like that, that one has really been the one that pops into my brain almost always. And just, you know, hearing people say things under their breath. And this wasn't just my peers, but also teachers and, uh, and, and experiencing that in education and having even microaggressions and physical spaces not be inviting, going into a classroom and the seats are uncomfortable because I don't fit well in them, you know, that sort of thing. Um, 
And that wasn't just me. Even our athletes sometimes have trouble fitting into those small desks. So it wasn't just, you know, the girl with a whole lot of curves or a lot of roles. Lots of people were in the, the physical space isn't always welcoming. I mean, that even continued into college, you know. Um, not all classrooms were felt welcoming to me. I could fit in the desk, but I wasn't always comfortable. And, you know, it's really hard to take notes and be engaged when you can't get comfortable in a chair. So, you know, little microaggressions like that, and those things add up. And, and it, gets, it gets really difficult. Luckily for me, I had a very supportive home environment. My, my parents were heavy. Um, and the, um, so it wasn't, I was, I was very much accepted and loved and um, who I was was just fabulous at home. You know, everybody loved me, even though I was, I was fat. Um, it wasn't a big deal at my house. But outside of the home, um, it was a different story. But that home environment is what provided me that protection and made me resilient, I think. The outside environment were the risk factors for me having lots of issues. But that home environment was strong enough that, that I was, you know, I had those protective factors that led to me to be resilient and to be able to do things like this research. Because not everyone is comfortable talking about their body size, particularly if they're not within normal range, whatever that is. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's little things like that that kind of led up to me really wanting to learn more. And honestly, I think the turning point in my life was I was actually, um, it was after I'd gotten married. I was having a lot of trouble loving my body. Lots of trouble loving my body. I'd given birth to a child. Um, I knew my body could do these amazing, beautiful things. I mean, I created life, right? But I still just just didn't love my body. And I couldn't understand why. Like, why can I not love this body that does amazing things for me? <clears throat> Excuse me. And I actually considered weight loss surgery. And so I started looking into the weight loss surgery. And it really scared me. Um, you know, it, I don't know if you know a whole lot about this. And, you know, it, there's, there's lots of different approaches to it. And, and this is no judgment on anyone who's had weight loss surgery. But it, it does take perfectly functioning organs and alters them. And that's kind of scary for me. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I, the more research that I did, the more I started asking myself, wow, is that an act of self-love to do that to yourself, to mutilate your body in that way? And so that kind of was the turning point for me and put me on this journey to really loving myself and accepting everything about me. The, what other people may see as imperfections, I embrace those things. It's, it's pretty fabulous. My body houses my hopes and dreams. It allows me to stand up in front of a classroom and teach and get really complex ideas across to people, not just using my brain or my mouth, but my body as a pedagogical tool. And so um, it's, it's been a long you know, journey to get there, but that turning point just completely changed my life and put me on this path, which I, I hope that I never leave this path because I really feel like this is, is my, um, this is my calling in life. Other than, you know, of course, teaching, that's where I'll always be, but to make a difference in this area is definitely a calling for me. Hmm. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research. So, so you talked about sort of these three influences, but you've, you've done some, well, what, what did you, what was your research methodology? Did you do interviews with people? How did it um, look and well, what I actually did was um, I wanted to, like I said, look at it within social work education. Um, and so I found out how many schools in Appalachia had social work programs. And um, how many do? Oh, goodness. Um, 
That's a good question. Oh, sorry. Um, there's about, <laughs> I can't remember the number of schools now, uh, but I do, um, I can tell you that I ended up with about 500 um, potential um, participants from the, the faculty. You know, I kind of creeped around on websites and found the names of those wow. faculties and, and grabbed their email addresses. And I actually sent them a survey where I asked them some demographic questions. You know, what part of Appalachia are you from? Because I wondered if there were some regional differences and um, whether they were practicing um, outside of just teaching and, um, you know, if they taught about fat in their courses, you know, not, there's nothing in our textbooks that talks about it. So are they recognizing and are you looking at fat? And if you are looking at fat, how are you talking about it? Are you talking about it from this biomedical perspective, which is the, you know, the modern discourse, um, and about how fat is bad and we need to change people and it's related to disordered eating and it's related to, or that it's causing chronic health conditions, which isn't exactly the truth. There's a correlation, not a causation. Or are we talking about it from a social justice perspective? Are we talking about food deserts? Are we talking about um, socioeconomic status and race and gender and sexual orientation um, and oppression and discrimination? Are we talking about those things? And so I kind of just ask them, you know, those sort of questions. And I also measured whether or not they held an anti-fat bias. So I gave them a scale and, and they answered a series of questions. And, um, you know, I was able to tally those up and find out if, if those educators themselves held an anti-fat bias because research shows us that um, the more attributions of personal um, controllability, um, more specifically, the more that we think the obese person or the fat person is responsible for their size, the more anti-fat bias we have. And when we have that bias, that negative evaluation, it leads to a very specific emotional state, and that emotional state leads to... A specific act and if that's a negative evaluation it's usually a negative emotional state and that negative act or that that act then is a negative act which is usually discriminatory so that's kind of you know one piece of how those attributions um, um, you know could impact us but it can also impact curriculum you know we can be discriminatory in our curriculum too if we're not addressing those issues then we're complicit in that oppression and it's not a good thing for social workers because we're all social justice warriors right um, but you know the this is our society in general does not recognize um, fat as a site of oppression it recognizes it as a, a public health issue and that it's dangerous. Um, uh, we actually had a, a, a Surgeon General, I think it was, or maybe it was an Attorney General once, who said that fat people were domestic terrorists. Yeah. Was there an explanation for that statement? What the was idea, the line of thinking? Yeah. That's a well, the bold idea was statement. that because I know, right? <laughs> the idea was that because people are, um, as a society, we're getting larger, that we're not fit for military service. And because we're not fit for military service, then um, we're, we're, we're keeping our country from having a good defense. And so that makes us terrorists. Wow. Yeah. That is a fascinating, for lack of a better word, right. argument. So what ends up <laughs> happening then when we have people who say things like that? These are our leaders, right? When we have people who say things like that, it, it ends up making the fat person... Um, not only a target for discrimination, but a target for danger. Like you are the reason why we're in trouble. So you're dangerous. You deserve to be discriminated against, right? Mm. Yeah. 
which is often how how that that dynamic works in a lot of communities right that people are represented as dangerous communities oh, which justifies mm-hmm. then absolutely a pretty negative treatment mm-hmm. hmm. and so then did you also do surveys with students or was it mostly around the curriculum and with it was mostly just around the curriculum and I just wanted to see you know if our social work educators hold an anti-fat bias is that showing up in their curriculum and so um, that's why I asked them about are you teaching about fat and we also in social work education um, we have a model that's outcome based and so what that means is that um, in order to have an accredited social work program we have to prove that the students we are graduating um, are competent in specific areas and so I actually took the competencies that the Council on Social Work Education requires us to follow and um, tweak them just a little bit to to make them very specific to working with fat clients and ask you know the educators um, when students leave your course what competencies do you expect them to be able to display when they leave. And it's some really interesting re- results with, with that. What I actually found, um, and I know we're hopping around a little that's bit here, great, that's great. but what we actually found, or what I actually found was that um, social work educators do a really good job of, of teaching our students to recognize um, oppression, um, to understand the different forms of oppression, but we're not really doing a good job in teaching them how to fight that oppression. We're not really doing a good job with teaching strategies for change for that. And, and that's, not, um, that's not specific just to, um, to, to fat. We've known for quite some time that we really, we really struggle, just not in social work, but just um, as change agents, any change agent, to have really effective strategies to create change. We really struggle with that. But it was, it was powerful to me to see that in black and white, that we're, we're doing a really good job of teaching them to recognize these things, but we're not teaching them to do anything about it. And so that really, in many ways, makes us complicit in, in the oppression. I mean, any of us, when we see these types of things happening, if we're not doing something to change it, if we're not confronting it, if we're not calling it what it is, we're complicit in that oppression. Mm. Yeah. So what was your sort of, I, this is a horrible question I'm about to ask you, I'm realizing, no, 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 I'm no. sorry, not horrible in a horrible in a way of someone who also just graduated from with a master's degree. So I didn't do a dissertation, but I did do a thesis. Oh no, it's a big deal. And so I'm about to ask you a stressful <laughs> research question which sure. is if you're going to sort of sum up your findings for us <laughs> so summon my findings um social work educators in Appalachia have mostly positive attitudes toward fat clients they are toward fat people so there's not a lot of anti-fat bias and when there is some anti-fat bias um you know it is present it's not not everybody's going to to be absent or void of anti-fat bias but when it is present um, it, it's in very small amounts however um, that small presence does have an impact on curriculum um, it looked like that social work educators in, in Appalachia have a pretty um, a pretty even approach to teaching about um, fat sometimes they use this dominant biomedical discourse where we're talking about health issues and and disordered eating and those sort of things but they're also covering some social justice topics like um, food deserts and uh, poverty and the relationship between fat and poverty and those sort of things um, What's really interesting is southern Appalachia, the greater southern area, so deep south and then south central, actually held the most anti-fat bias. 
which was really interesting. And we could talk for days about why that might be. Um, but that is also the part of Appalachia um, that is the fattest. So that's 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 pretty interesting. As a matter of fact, just across our country, um, our fattest citizens live in in the in the South, and so um, that's uh, that was that was pretty powerful to me. And it's likely that the reason why that area has the most anti-fat bias is you know public health campaigns are hitting that area really hard, and um, the more that you are inundated with messages that fat is bad and fat people are bad, you're going to internalize that. Even fat people themselves internalize that and and dislike other fat people I know I used to be one of those people and it's very hard to overcome that so I think that's probably a reason why they displayed a little more um, a little more bias than than their peers something that I was particularly proud of um, being from central Appalachia is that central Appalachia um, displayed the least Hmm. um, anti-fat bias and they were the most even in their approach and um, and as a matter of fact, they probably leaned a little bit more towards social justice issues. And again, we could probably go on all day about why that is. I mean, we're we're many times and have been for years right in the heart of labor disputes and, you know, so on and so forth. So we, we understand social justice, or I like to think we do. Um, but who knows? You know, it just may have been an artifact of sampling. But there were some regional differences. Um the thing that I, I guess has been really most difficult for me to process with the results is that um, the very complicated postmodern approaches to oppression, the lived experience and fat studies and even health at every size, which is, is which is an alternative to the, the modern health discourse, um, we're not really being taught. And that's probably, you know, I don't think that that's malicious. I don't think that that social work educators are doing that on purpose. It's just we've not been exposed to it. Um, if we're not getting it in our professional development, if we're not, we're certainly not getting it in society because we're hearing all the public health messages. Um, you know, can we really be held responsible for not knowing those things? So that's kind of my mission is to get that out there and say, you know, we have to address these things. We have to look at this um, as a side of oppression, um, particularly with intersectionality. You know, um, that oppression impacts women more than men. Um, you know, there's already a wage gap between men and women. And this just give you an example of how fat oppression uh, impacts women more. Um, some recent studies have found that for every 64 pounds that a woman is over an average weight, whatever that average weight would be, she experiences a 9% decrease in her wages. Now, you add that to the wage gap we already have, and that significantly impacts a woman's ability to, to earn money. Right. And so um, and, and we also know that women experience on average, fat women experience on average three stigmatizing experiences a day based on her weight. And the fatter that she is, the more stigmatizing experiences that she's going to have. That's that's a that's a heavy burden to carry, and that's a lot to deal with. And I I know just from my own experience, and in talking with with other fat women, that it becomes our norm that that it that is our normal, and we don't even think about those stigmatizing experiences until somebody mentions, "Hey, did they just say what they said to you?" Um, I, I recently, it's been within uh, the last year, was doing my grocery shopping, and I have three children. And so, you know, you have to let kids have treats, right? And I think I had ice cream or something like that in my cart. And a gentleman just walked up to me and started telling me um, that he didn't really think I needed 
that ice cream in my car. This I had no idea who this man was. I'd never seen him in my life. And he just assumed, based on my size, that I had diabetes. And he started telling me about his own struggle with diabetes. I mean, he went into a full conversation with me about what he was doing to deal with his diabetes and then asked me what I was doing to deal with mine. And I I was kind of taken aback and I was like, sir, I I don't have diabetes. (laughs) And he just looked at me with this look like, of course you do. All fat people have diabetes. Actually, that's not true. You know, 80% of people who are diabetic are thin, right? So um, it, it was really interesting. And I have people, you know, feel like they can do that with me a lot. Um, in the 80s, there was a physician, the first physician to actually start talking about fat oppression um, and to get away from that biomedical approach, said that he had found Albert Stunkard was his name. He said he had found that that obesity oppression, obesity being the medical term, and he was a physician, was the last acceptable prejudice. And I think that that's probably too true. When we look at additional research, we found that over the past um, couple of decades that um, anti-fat bias has increased by 66%. Yeah. And it is the third most common um, bias experienced by women and the fourth most common experienced by everyone. Um, I think it was only beat by, um, gender and race. And I think it was anti-Muslim was the next one. So, you know, we are like up there with some serious, um, serious bias. And, uh, that has some terrible, terrible, um, implications for the quality of life of fat people. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I speak from experience to navigate the world with that kind of a spoiled identity, um, Irvin Goffman, a sociologist, assigned this idea that that um, when people have these characteristics um, like a disability or that they've had an STD or, some, you know, they um, are HIV positive or something, they, they develop a spoiled identity. And in his research, um, fat was included as one of those areas that would um, lead to stigmatization and a spoiled identity. Can you say more about the spoiled identity? What did, what did he mean by that? Or what did you mean by that? Um, it's actually just... Um, People always making assumptions about you um, based on your body size. And this kind of ties back into that controllability, those attributions of controllability. Um, you can't have a stigma without those attributions of controllability. So the more likely that you are to believe that I am responsible for my weight, i.e. I eat too much, don't exercise enough, um, the more you're going to attach stereotypes and stigma to me, which spoils my identity. Like I am the other, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It, when you think about it in terms of in-group, out-group, like I am part of the out group. We can hide, um, you know, a lot of different things about our identities, but I can't really hide my body size. Um, and so, you know, my, that aspect of my body is just always out there. So my spoiled identity, it's like a, wearing your heart on your sleeve. I wear my spoiled identity on my sleeve because it's always visible. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so... What are some of your hopes for how to get your research out, how to start shifting some of the social work education in, in this way? Well, you know, obviously I'm going to have to reach out to our our, um, our major professional organizations, National Association of Social Workers, the Council on Social Work Education, um, and um, kind of start talking to them about recognizing this as a diversity, a natural diversity. Um, research actually shows us that... Um, 
it, this or there's a lot of research let me rephrase it a lot of research is indicating that body size is truly just a naturally occurring diversity um i mean if weight if losing weight or a body changing our body size was as simple as decreasing our calories and increasing our activity wouldn't everybody be thin it's not that simple what we know is there's a lot of factors that lead to body size there's set point weight theory which is this idea that we have a set point weight and within you know 15 or 30 pounds or so that's where you're going to stay. And yo-yo dieting kind of really screws that up because when you diet, your brain doesn't realize it's 2017 and there's a lot of food, right? Your brain just knows, oh no, I'm not getting, the body's not getting the nutrients it needs. There's a famine. There must be a famine. So it slows your body metabolism down and those sort of things. And then once you lose that, I don't know, 15, 20, 30, 50 pounds, I mean, then you go back, you know, slowly back to the way of eating that you were before your body gains that weight back plus your body gains a little more right and 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 that's a protective factor so you've reset your 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 point your set point you've reset that because your body is like okay well we've made it through the famine right but we need to have just a little more weight just in case that happens again. And so we begin that process of dieting again. And that has some really negative impacts on our heart, uh, you know, just on, on, on our organs in general and what it does to us. That, as a matter of fact, research shows that yo-yo dieting is worse for your heart than being fat. Yeah. Because your, your heart has to adjust to those fluctuations in weight all the time. Hmm. So... Yeah, it's really fascinating. You don't hear about those things in the in the yeah. No. You, you also don't hear about the obesity paradox, which is this idea, and and, and there's lots of research behind this, um, that being overweight um, and even slightly obese, and I'm using the medical terms because this comes from medical research, um, actually provides um, you with some better health outcomes in certain situations. It actually um, was discovered in 2002, there was a group of heart surgeons who started realizing that their overweight and slightly obese patients did better than their thin or underweight patients. So they started looking at that a little bit more and they saw that across the board. And so they termed it the obesity paradox. Well, of course, when they discovered that and they produced their research, other researchers were like, hmm, I wonder if that applies to other diseases as well. And it does. It spreads into cancer and some reproductive issues. So it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. But you don't hear about that. We're not talking about those when we talk about public health campaigns. And when we talk about, even from that biomedical perspective, when we're talking about obesity, we're not talking Talking about the fact that obesity can have protective factors for you as well. Um, one of the things I talked about was with cancer, if you're going through chemotherapy and some of those treatments, which are known to make you very sick and people lose a lot of weight, it's actually good to be a little heavier because you're not going to get that wasting syndrome. And that wasting often leads to issues that can result in your death. And so, you know, if we just think about that and, and, and look at the protective factors rather than just wanting to focus on how bad fat is, which translates and how bad fat people are. Um, I think we could, we could change, we could start to move that shift toward recognizing it's a natural body diversity and all people have dignity and worth. And the size of one's body does not indicate in any way how productive they are as a citizen or you know uh, it's not going to limit them in any way the only limitations we would truly have is what other people would put on us you're listening to mountain talk on wmmt 88.7 fm broadcasting from the apple shop in whitesburg kentucky
On today's show, we bring you an interview with Dr. Janessa Kilgore Bowling from the University of Pikeville about her research into anti-fat bias in social work education and society. How has it been to sort of be doing research in an academic setting about something that's so connected to your personal everyday life? And how have you kind of um, managed that tension between what's um, how how to combine those things, you know, these very personal experiences with kind of an academic project, academic writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and it's one that I've had to grapple with a lot. When I first started this process of dissertation, you know, you've been in classes for so long and then you're out on your own and that's the really hard part like you know the structured piece is really easy but then they just throw you out there to do this on your own right I, I call it academic hazing because that's kind of what it feels like um but um they throw you out there to do it on your own and I had lots of people telling me like you know don't do something that you're really passionate about but you just you just want to do something and get through it do some kind of secondary data analysis don't do original work but I couldn't imagine spending that much time of my life and it's a lot of time and um, with something that I didn't feel really passionate about and that didn't you know that that um that gave me purpose and so um you know I I like I said I purposely chose to do this and it took me convincing you know some people that it was a good idea um and it involved me having to teach others about it. So that really drove me, right? So I'm teaching others, and now they think it's a good idea, so I'm going to move forward. Um, but it got really, really personal. I started doing the research, and I was seeing all these things. I mean, I knew the discrimination. I had lived it. But to see it in black and white, to see the massive amount of studies that have been done. I mean, we've known about anti-fat bias among helping professionals since the 1960s. And we've been documenting it since then. I mean, it first started out with physicians. Like, we know that physicians who hold an anti-fat bias um, report that they feel like their their fat patients are animalistic and um, unhygienic, and they don't want to spend a lot of time with them. And actually, study shows they spend less time with fat clients or fat patients than they do with normal size patients. Um, and and they don't uh, they don't invest as much in their treatment because they feel like it's useless. Like they're fat, they're not going to follow that treatment plan. They're always going to be fat. And so. Um, you know, since we've known that since, since the 60s. I mean, think about that for a moment, since the 60s. And what we know now about the research is that hasn't changed. Our physicians are still carrying that anti-fat bias. And our, um, uh, and it's spread. I mean, we've begun to do research in other areas. So we've looked at nurses and we've looked at um, exercise uh, scientists. We've looked at mental health professionals and, of course, social workers. Um, and, and there is a presence of anti-fat bias there. So if you... If we reframe that, it's, you know, if you look at it, it's just that professionals hold anti-fat bias. It's not really that surprising because they're humans. I mean, right? Just because our role in life, um, our occupational role does not change who we are as humans. We all have, we're all fallible. But if I am an obese person who is being discriminated against and I'm, and I'm having to navigate life with, you know, this spoiled identity that I talk about, then chances are I'm going to need a helping professional, whether I'm going to need somebody to give me a physical to get a job or if I'm really struggling and with coping with how I'm being treated and I need to see a, a, um, a mental health professional. Um, the folks that I'm going to are going to hold that anti-fat bias and they are going to treat me the same way as the folks who drove me there treat me. And so that's really powerful. And, and, and um, that's also kind of what drives me is, is if we are oppressing people 
just in society in general, and we are, we're pushing people to need helping professionals. We're sending them to people who have an anti-fat bias and who feel it's acceptable to have an anti-fat bias. Um, going back to, to medical students, um, there's some research out there that says that medical students often hear their professors and their supervisors uh, making fun of or talking negatively about fat patients. And they feel like that's okay because fat people deserve that. They let themselves get in that state. And so that doesn't account for, you know, metabolic disorders where someone may have polycystic ovarian syndrome and um, have gained weight and, and can't lose weight after that. Or they have a thyroid issue or an adrenal issue or something. Um, and they see that as okay. So the research is telling us that sometimes medical schools, and, and, um, and this is not you know, just to pick on medical schools, this is where they've done a lot of research, can actually make anti-fat bias worse because it reinforces that type of behavior. Um, now, lots of medical schools, nursing programs, and other areas, too, have implemented these anti-bias uh, reduction strategies. It's, you know, maybe it's a curriculum section or um, um, a class, maybe not an entire class, probably, but they're, they're trying to take steps to reduce it. And interestingly enough, the research has shown us that that's just hit and miss. Sometimes it makes a difference. Sometimes it makes no difference. It may depend on the cohort of students. There's a lot of a lot of variables there, but so we don't really have good anti-fat bias reduction strategies to change some of these things. So when I started reading about those things, it was really hard. I'm like, how am I ever going to change anything, regardless of what my research is? And particularly when I started looking at the different areas that people are discriminated against in, you know, we talked a little bit about education, but you know, in healthcare, um, there's a lot of um, a lot of fat people who go undiagnosed with issues because it's always blamed on their size. Um, I know every time I go to see a physician, they always, regardless of what I go for, they always add that diagnosis of like morbid obesity on there, right? And so, uh, and I, I've often heard many, many times when I could go in for like an earache or a sinus infection, and they're like, you know, if you would lose weight, you'd feel a little better. Like, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Um, but because of size, they often dismiss complaints and blame it on weight. Um, have a, a friend just recently shared with me, um, she's um, an older woman and um, starting to have you know, a little bit of joint issues and she actually shared with me that she had been talking to her physician about it and the physician um, was dismissing it and saying you know if you just lose some weight if you just lose some weight luckily this woman was an advocate for herself and she kept pushing and they actually sent her to see an orthopedic surgeon and she really had something wrong with her hip that had nothing to do with her size and so that happens a lot. Um, as a matter of fact, people are more likely to become victims of medical mistakes because not as the care is not taken with them the way it is with thin patients. And there's also this idea that there's more of a body field to like leave objects in people and so on and so forth. So it's always, and again, it goes back to blaming the fat person. It's your fault. You've got a big body and I could lose things in there. So it, it's really, really interesting. Whenever you want to take responsibility for that uh, discrimination or that oppression and the other piece that really really hit me hard you know I, I'm married and and so um but I had that that dating life where um you know many guys would not even give me a second look without uh, just because of my size I've actually you know had relationships with um with guys who would say to me um you know Jesse you're so pretty but 
And then, you know, the butt piece would always be because of my size, right? But, but you know, if you would just lose a little weight, um, I've heard that a lot <laughs> growing up. You have such a pretty face. Or you're so smart. If you would just, if you were just a little thinner or if you were just a little this, or, you know, just a little that. And, you know, I don't know that I realized what an impact that had on me until I started this journey of really accepting myself. Um, those things are hurtful. I mean, very hurtful. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty and I'm fat. I can be both. I really can. Um, I can be fat and fabulous. I actually think I am. So <laughs> I probably need a shirt that says that. Um, um, but that was really hard for me to read the interpersonal relationship stuff again because it brought up all of those times that I was rejected. You know, every girl has teenage crushes. And, you know, to be rejected by that crush, regardless of what size, is pretty devastating. But when you know you're rejected because of your size, um, it, it's really hard. So reading that and, and knowing that... Um, Women are less likely to get married if they're fat. Women are less likely to um, to have relationships until they are much older. If you know this starts as early as adolescence. As a matter of fact, we know that children as young as three, children as young as three, hold an anti-fat bias. And of course, they're learning that from from people. Social learning theory tells us they're picking that up from their models. But that sticks with them, right? You know, just like no child is born racist. No child is born with an anti-fat bias. They learn those things through their environment, through the models in their life. And so, um, you know, it's really hard when those biases start that young to change them. So when you're an adolescent and you, know, you have that crush on that guy and his family has that anti-fat bias and he has that anti-fat bias, it's, it's quite devastating. And as a young woman, I can remember, you know, navigating the, the dating world, especially in college. And um, it's, it was just, uh, it was powerful to to read those things because it brought up all those experiences that I hadn't thought about in years, you know, just that, that intersectionality of being Appalachian and then also having, being a woman to navigate that and a fat woman and, you know, all of those, those things that, wow, that the impact of that oppression for each of those identities is, is very overwhelming. Yeah. 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 Well, and have you noticed things, I'm just wondering about traveling like outside the region, uh, is it more pronounced versus being in the region or? You know, and it really, it really depends on where I'm going. Um, I love to fly, love it, um, on, on one level, but I also really dread flying because, um, regardless of what size you are, airplanes are not very comfortable, but, (laughs) um, they're definitely not designed for um, a larger person, not just a fat person, but a larger person. Lots of people struggle, um, but they don't make the, you know, a six foot four, 300 pound football player take another seat or buy an extra seat. But the five foot three, 280 pound woman would be discriminated against and they would many airlines not all of them many airlines will ask her to buy another seat and the the part of that comes from the people sitting with them um don't want to sit next to a fat person Uh, you know i don't want their thigh touching me it may rub off on me i may catch the fatness i don't know what the idea behind it is um and so i always have a fear when i fly that i'm going to have to sit next to the person who has a really strong anti-fat bias and it's not afraid to talk about it because, you know, it is the last acceptable form of prejudice. So I can, you know, people feel like they can make comments about my body all the time and it's perfectly fine. Um, you know, much more free to make comments about my body than they would be about the fact that I'm a woman or about race. Right. Um, and, and 
so I, I just always fly with that fear. You know, I have to wait until we're up in the air, probably around cruising altitude before I feel safe. Um, and it just so happens that one of the very first times I actually um, was on a plane and alone, not traveling with someone, I, I went to get in my seat and there was um, uh, the, the pot of three and I was the middle seat and there was a, a large gentleman there and um, a very petite older lady and the gentleman became very frustrated and upset that he was going to have to sit next to a fat woman yeah yeah and and, and granted um I was I was um I was fatter then I was about uh, 60 or 80 pounds heavier then but still I was fitting fine inside of the seat I wasn't spilling over onto him um but I guess he was afraid that you know my my fat was going to jump over on him. I don't know. He was a large man himself, um, probably wider than, than myself, but, um, it's, it's more acceptable for men to, to carry weight than it is for women. And so, uh, it, it, it ended up happening that he was making, you know, this blowing and huffing and making such a fuss that the, the, the petite woman actually asked the flight attendant if there was an extra seat so that she could go and sit there and I could sit in the window. And I was so grateful that she did. But another part of me was like, no, make him sit beside of me. Right. <laughs> make him sit beside of me. Um, but I get why she did it. She, I think she felt that I was going, you know, it was going to make a scene and that it would upset me because she patted my arm as she walked by me. And it was very kind. It was a very sweet gesture. But at the same time, I just wanted to be like, I'm not going to sit next to the window. I'm going to sit in my seat, the one that was assigned to me, and make him just have to be near me. Um but, you know, it was fine. He actually went to sleep about 10 minutes into the flight and snored the whole time. So he wouldn't even have known I was next to him, right? Um, but there was something about that. Um, there's actually a theory called the proximity effect. And um, what this theory says is that just being next to a fat person, being seen with a fat person in the proximity of a fat person is enough to activate a stigma for the, the thinner person or the non-obese or whatever you want to call it. So... Um, this um this is why a lot of folks won't be seen dating a fat person or they don't even want fat friends or you know parents are ashamed of fat children that's why is that proximity effect like they feel like it stigmatizes them as well so yeah um as a matter of fact uh, people who are attracted to fat men or women are labeled i mean we used to call them chubby chasers <laughs> yeah. Well. Now the politically correct term is fat admirers. Is there a phrase for people who have, who prefer um, a, a thin body type or someone who is a little underweight? Maybe there's there's no label for folks that prefer that size body. Um, yeah. So it's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Are there like either scholars or? writers or artists or people that you admire who are doing doing work in this field that you think other people should find out about oh goodness yes I I truly um am just standing on the shoulders of a lot of uh, fat studies pioneers uh I, I guess I don't know of any in Appalachia, so maybe I'll become the emerging expert in Appalachia. Yeah. <laughs> but I do know there's probably others out there and I just don't know about them. Um um Dr. Linda Bacon actually came up with, uh, she's a nutritionist, a thin nutritionist actually, who came up with this uh, health at every size model. And, and, and this is, it's, it's an alternative to this modern um, obesity 
obesity uh, discourse that we hear about all the time where it celebrates body diversity and it talks about mindful eating and movement just for the fun of movement and because you can and not because you have to and those sort of things. It's a very holistic approach to health and it, you know, um, it focuses on healthy behaviors and healthy choices rather than dieting like we don't even use that word at my house because it has the word die in it right so it should it shouldn't be about dieting it should be about healthy behaviors and about making smart decisions for your body and um and just to keep your you know your body uh, uh, in tip-top shape whatever size that it is and whatever your health status is going to be we all don't have the same health status right and we're never going to have the same health status so um you know, what would be healthy for me? You know, what is my healthy and maintaining that healthy. Um, and I just love that approach. Also, um, there is, um, Esther Rothbloom. She is the current editor of the, um, the fat studies journal. So actually we actually have our own journal. Um, and so she's, she's pretty phenomenal too. She's been doing research in this area, I think since the seventies. So she's, she's, it's, it's pretty fabulous. Um, Marilyn uh, Wan is another one. She's uh, um, from California, and so is is uh, Dr. Roth Bloom, and she is a true um, fat advocate. It's just amazing. She does these beautiful public speaking. She wrote a book called Fat So, like so what you're fat, um, and she had an easing out for a while. And she she has a lot of beautiful things, and 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 she really focuses a lot on intersectionality as well, and um, and there's some other folks um uh, there is um i'm forgetting her last name right now and it's terrible for me there's a, a lady from idaho um amy is her first name and i can't believe oh i can't believe i'm missing her last name um anyway she um done something really radical and and put on a two-piece bathing suit as a large woman and stood out in a market and um with a sharpie and asked people to write messages on her body and so you know, it was really really powerful because she she got a got a lot of love from that and uh and so you know that's just so she, she's internationally known for doing things like that and um and gosh there's so many others um I do know there's a few folks in in Kentucky who um are promoting you know body positivity I think that there's a place in uh, I know that there's a fat positive Louisville and um you know, I th there may be even in some of the other areas, but there's so few and far between. It's really interesting because the states that we see is more focused on health and beauty, like um, further west, are the ones that have the strongest fat presence um, and, and fat advocacy. That's actually where the movement toward fat acceptance started. And it was right around the time of the, um, um, the LGBTQ movement as well. And so, as a matter of fact, we use um, a, a lot of that kind of language, like there's actually a coming out as fat. At, right um and it's a little bit different but it is um there is something to be said for coming out as fat and owning that and calling yourself that and forcing people to see you differently right and so um yeah there's a lot of parallels so we stand on you know the shoulders of those pioneers as well um, there's tons of folks I'm, I'm sure i'm i know that i'm leaving out uh, many sandra solovey uh, an, an attorney so she does a lot of the human rights pieces um, she has a great book called tipping the scales of justice and i would if you're interested in how you know fat people are discriminated against um and how that may end up in in the legal system that's a really really wonderful book to read um there's a, a fat studies reader book that's been edited and it's put out there and it kind of talks about a lot of the things i've talked about today um let me just back up for a moment and say that 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 legal piece that that tipping the scales of justice that book is so important because a lot of people don't realize this but weight is not a protected class 
So it is not illegal to discriminate against someone based on their weight. So, for example, the making someone buy an extra seat on the airplane, there's no legal um, action that can be taken by the right. person who had to buy an extra seat. There is no legal recourse, unless you're one of the lucky folks that live in the state of Michigan. Michigan does have a law, um, and there are six little small um, like cities and municipalities, San Francisco, uh, California, Washington, D.C., um, Urbana, Illinois, Madison, Wisconsin, um, Binghamton, New York, and there's one more place in California, and I'm, uh, it's slipping in my mind um, presently. But anyway, there's, there's just a few areas, and what's really interesting about that is note that none of that was in Appalachia. None of those were in the South, which is where we have, you know, our fattest citizens. So the folks that are really the most vulnerable and oppressed in those areas don't have legal recourse if they're discriminated against. So they don't have legal recourse. And even when they um, even when they try, um, many folks try to use the American with Disabilities Act. Um, and that's a really slippery slope because not all not all fat people have a disability not all fat people are limited right and it would be those that would be the super fats that may have some mobility issues but that doesn't mean they still can't work and be productive members of society and those sort of things but there's there's no there's no protection whatsoever so so if you if i'm discriminated against i have no legal recourse and if i go to a helping professional to get assistance in dealing with all of those issues it's likely i'm going to face the same anti-fat bias that drove me to them. And so, um, I mean, we have to change that. We absolutely have to change that. Um, otherwise, I think it's, it's just going to be like a feedback loop. We're going to, you know, constantly have this, um, this, this circle of, of fat stigma and fat discrimination and anti-fat bias. And studies actually show us that that, that shame that's involved with that stigma, that anti-fat bias and those discrimination, those discriminatory acts don't actually motivate people to lose weight. It doesn't. It actually um, has the opposite effect. You know, many times uh, when people are, are treated that way, they give up, right? It's kind of like that self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm fat. I'm no good. This is all I'm going to be. And so they stop exercising and they stop moving just for fun and doing things that's good for them and that keeps them, you know, at, in, in a, at a static state. Um, and then they gain more weight and then that stigma gets worse. You know, if you think about the heavier you are, the more stigmatizing situations. So that's the feedback loop there. And public health campaigns depend on that, that shame and that stigma to do that work. And so um, those areas that are the heaviest in the public health establishment hits those areas hard. All they're doing truly is creating that feedback loop where people are going to get fatter and fatter and fatter and there's going to be more discrimination um, and more people needing help. Um, and it's just really, that's going to be what will stress our health and welfare services. That's what will will really put pressure on them. I don't think it will actually be the effects of obesity alone, but it will be all of these psychological and social pieces that will really put the stress on our systems. But of course, it will be blamed on just, you know, just the body fat. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for doing this work. And thanks for talking to me about it and, and sharing this with our radio listeners. Thank you for having me. This is, it's, it's really important for me to get, um, to get this message out there. And, and if nothing else, just get people thinking about it. Like, 
what if this is just a natural body diversity? And if this is no different than what color eyes you have or what color your hair is, you know, or your skin, whether or not you have a birthmark or right-handed or left-handed, what if this just is a naturally occurring diversity and we're treating people differently for that reason? Um, and, and I know this is, you know, it's going to be a long journey, but I really have, have, hope that we will get there. I'm sure this is how folks who were fighting for civil rights in the 60s felt too. Are we ever going to be accepted um, for, you know, the color of our skin, the fact that we have a little more pigment pigment than others, you know? And so, I mean, I have hope that, um, that, that we'll get there, especially in Appalachia. Appalachian people tend to take care of their folks. And, but sometimes we just, you know, it just has to be brought to our attention. We just have to know what's going on. And if, and if we're not acknowledging it and calling it out, you know, if we don't give it a name, then um, we're we're just as responsible for the cycle of oppression as anyone else. So I thank you for giving me you know an avenue to talk about it. I um, before we end, if you don't mind, I just want to throw out there that um, I am working on um, just some just some kind of personal projects, not related to my research, but in creating. Um, some body positive and some fat positive as well, because body positive is a little more inclusive, fat positive just for that population. Um, groups in our area, um, I'm working on developing a Facebook page. Um, and when I say developing it, it's just that um, there are some rules that kind of have to be established. And you have to be really careful about who you accept onto those um those pages because they need to be a safe place for folks to be able to talk about the oppression, the the frustrations, and and to celebrate, you know, the good things their their journey um, on their way to loving their bodies, and so that's really important. And I would really like to start not just the Facebook group, but actually a physical group where we would have gatherings where, you know, you would see people that look like you and could share stories with you um, to provide that support and to normalize. Right. I may have a non-normative body, but I'm very much a normal person. And, and I think that's important for, you know, for us to have that that support and and um, and solidarity. And, and, you know, when the more people see us, the more we allow ourselves to be visible and the more that we force people to see us differently than just a fat body then um, that'll push us further and further um, away from oppression and closer and closer to where, you know, we want to be with with being, you know, included and, and not seen as the other, the dreaded other. So, um, you know, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to get that out there soon and, you know, maybe I'll Let, send it to you and let you spread it out. We can, yeah, we can connect it back to your story and share it out with our listeners. Yeah, and, you know, we'll sure. have some events and get-togethers, a couple of um of the, the groups that I've seen, they actually, one is a lot of fun in the summer. They have something they call a chunky dunk. And so they have a pool party and it's just like everybody gets together and it's places where, you know, fat women can go and wear a two piece bathing suit yeah. and feel good about it because there are other people there that look like them. Yeah. And so, um, I don't know that we have a place to have a chunky dunk, but, um, <laughs> I would like to have, you know, activities like that. Um, um, book reads, you know, things like, I mean, just, normal events, normal get togethers, but with people who look like me and can share, um, share that piece of my identity, you know, who, who have a fat identity. Um, that sense of community is important. And I don't know that we have that in Appalachia, but we will soon. We will soon. Great. With your, with your help. I hope so. <laughs> but thank you again. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you. That's it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to listen to this or past episodes again, please visit our website at wmmt.org. 
or you can download Mountain Talk as a podcast on SoundCloud or Stitcher. I'm Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thank you for listening. Thank you.